Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash BPC. Supported by an unrestricted educational grant from AstraZeneca. Welcome to this multidisciplinary peer voice talks on chronic kidney disease and heart failure. This activity comprises three presentations featuring Professors Sarah Jarvis, David Chani, and Pardeep Jund. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. We all know patients like Amelia. At age 54, she's overweight, her blood pressure and HbA1c are elevated, and she's got albuminuria. She has a family history of chronic kidney disease and type 2 diabetes. She may not be thinking about how these health issues will affect her future while she's dealing with the immediate concerns of a stressful job, teenage children, and older parents who need care. Even for clinicians, the threat of kidney disease and heart failure may seem distant, something for future Amelia to worry about. As you follow her journey, you'll see opportunities to intervene that may have prevented these outcomes. We'll start at the beginning as Amelia presents to primary care. Amelia's primary care physician recommends a comprehensive management plan to help protect her kidneys, including intense blood pressure control and an SGLT2 inhibitor. Her journey to CKD and heart disease could have ended there, but her narrative takes a much more familiar route and Amelia is lost to follow up. We see her again at age 58, consulting with a nephrologist. She has now developed chronic kidney disease as well as type 2 diabetes. It's still not too late to prevent progression to end-stage renal disease and even death with appropriate medical intervention. Our next glimpse into Amelia's future is at age 70. She's developed signs of heart failure. Her cardiologist knows it's still not too late and recommends medical therapy to help manage her symptoms and prevent further exacerbation of heart disease. Amelia's story serves to remind us that there are multiple points where we can intervene to prevent or delay disease progression. When initiated at early stages, these interventions can help put patients like Amelia on a path that doesn't lead to worsening renal and cardiac disease. Her story is also a reminder that even if we can't change the path, we can still change the destination. Let's start the journey. Hello, everybody. And a very warm welcome. My name is Dr. Sarah Jarvis. I've been a family doctor in the United Kingdom for rather more years than I care to mention. Thank you very much. I'm delighted that you are joining me and our patient on their journey with CKD and heart failure. Now, this is just part one of their journey. We will also be joined in our next presentation by a nephrologist for our patient on their journey with CKD. He'll be seeing the same patient at a different time and hopefully we'll be looking at how we might change that patient's trajectory with the right treatments. We'll also be joined later by a cardiologist and we'll have a panel discussion to follow up, thinking about how we might change things. And when I say how we might change things, what I really mean with a patient like this is how I could actually avoid them ever reaching the cardiologist or the renal physician, because we are now in the position in primary care where we can identify early and we must identify early because if we do, we can intervene early and we can really make a difference to this patient's trajectory. We can improve their quality 
and their quantity of life. We can intervene at an early stage. So often those small changes that we can help our patients make can have a really big impact on the prevention and indeed the management of chronic kidney disease. So in the next 10 minutes or so, I hope I'm going to convince you that these patients do not belong to the nephrologist. They do not belong to the cardiologist. They belong to me and my colleagues in primary care. So we meet Amelia. She is pretty typical of so many patients that I see. If we just look at the physical examination, we can see she's 54 years old. She's got a body mass index of 31.2 and surprise, surprise, her blood pressure is 146 over 90. That's a clinic reading, not an ABPM, of course. Just before she came in, she had her laboratory tests done and her EGFR is 65. Well, fine, you might think, except we don't know what stage of CKD she might have because we don't have a urine ACR. More of that in a moment. Her HbA1c is 6.2%, that's 44 millimoles per mole, and that means she's got pre-diabetes or high risk of diabetes, however you define it. And that's really important because if we look at the bottom, we'll see the elements which, from her perspective and to an extent from mine, are more important than anything else because these are the elements which are really going to have an impact on how she engages with treatment and the changes that she feels able to make. Both her parents have type 2 diabetes, her father has cardiovascular disease, her mother has obesity, her mother has chronic kidney disease. And these are her concerns. She doesn't want to end up like her mother or her father, but she fears it is inevitable. She feels powerless. She thinks that she is on the same trajectory as them and there's nothing she can do about it. Not least because she is a squeezed middle. She's got teenage daughters, she's got her parents, they all demand her time. And in terms of self-care, she is right down at the bottom of the list. That's before you take into account the fact that her job is really, really stressful. She just hasn't got room in her brain, in her diary to look after herself. What makes it even worse, this sense of the inevitable that she's moving towards the same poor outcomes as her parents. So how are we going to make a difference? We need to, because if we don't, this does not bode well for Amelia. Let's think about some of those really scary statistics. One third of people with type 2 diabetes, and she is on track for type 2 diabetes if she keeps going the way she's going, one third of them will have cardiovascular disease. Up to 40% of people with type 2 diabetes will have chronic kidney disease. If you have chronic kidney disease, 60% of people with CKD will have cardiovascular disease. And heart failure, of course, one of the most common manifestations of cardiovascular disease, 20 to 40% of people with heart failure have type 2 diabetes and 30 to 40% of people with heart failure have chronic kidney disease. These conditions are inextricably linked. Her hypertension increases her risk of chronic kidney disease and cardiovascular disease. The same risk factors that predispose her to hypertension are also predisposing her to type 2 diabetes. Right in the middle, we have obesity, which is driving all of these. The problem is, Amelia's view is, well, I've tried, there's nothing I can do about it. 
So how are we going to change Amelia's trajectory? Because we really do need to do that. At the top, we've got the things that we need to do as healthcare professionals in the short term. We definitely need to assess our hypertension and we've got to use ambulatory blood pressure or home blood pressure monitoring to do that. Once we know her level of hypertension, we can start to think about both diet and lifestyle, but also, of course, importantly, medication, which will help control her blood pressure and therefore protect her kidneys and her heart. But we also need to assess her kidney function. And to do that, EGFR is simply not enough. It is essential that we get a urine ACR as well. If you look at the KDIGO heat map for patients with CKD, there are two fundamental elements. One is EGFR and the other is UACR. A patient, two patients with the same EGFR can have very different levels of risk dependent on what their urine ACR is. Once we've got all those measurements, and once ideally we know the trajectory of the EGFR as well, how much our EGFR is dropping over time, that rate of decline, we can develop an appropriate medication plan. If her UACR is, is elevated, she's going to need an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker, and she's certainly now going to need an SGLT2, which will provide specific protection to the kidneys over and above any benefits that you might get for a patient with type 2 diabetes in terms of reducing their HbA1c, managing obesity. She's tried, she doesn't think she can do it anymore. And this is where tools like motivational interviewing are going to make a real, real difference. There are 8,760 hours in a year. She, if she's lucky, will spend three of them with you. The other 8,757 She's effectively on her own. So she absolutely needs to be bought in to the idea that she must and can make changes. And in order to do that, we need to work out with her what her priorities are. And her priorities may be very different from our own. Only if she is really on board with the idea that she needs to change and that she can make those changes, can we really use motivational interviewing, first developed as a tool for people with drug and alcohol misuse, and really effective in helping people to make incremental changes? Only then is she really likely to succeed. In terms of medication, shared decision-making, similar principles, the open discussion with the healthcare professional and the patient as equal partners, where we take the medical evidence and the patient's perspectives and priorities into account. And the final decision is made by the patient with input from the healthcare professional. Again, really good evidence that this improves adherence. But none of this is going to happen if she is so stressed out that she doesn't feel able to prioritise herself. So we need to think about how maybe referral to a counsellor can help her to reduce her stress levels. The good news, the happy path, it worked. Two years later, Amelia's hypertension is controlled. She's taking the right medication, but really importantly, she's lost 15% of her body weight. That has improved her levels of energy. It's also improved her lipid profile. It's meant that she hasn't progressed to type 2 diabetes. She's bucking the trend. She feels that she may be able to avoid her parents' fate, and she's preserved her kidney function. She doesn't need 
HbA1c lowering medication specifically because she hasn't developed type 2 diabetes. But the SGLT2, of course, is here being used for protection of her kidneys. So I think this shows with a really holistic approach, the tools we now have already at our disposal without a referral to secondary care, what we can do. Sadly, of course, it doesn't always work like that. So this is the alternative scenario in a parallel universe. Amelia's come in. She's just moved into the area to look after her parents. Oh dear, more stress for her. Her blood results and her examination results are as they were before. But we now repeat her urinaceR and it has gone up from 20 to 40. Her EGFR is 60. It's come down five in the last two years alone. Do we need to refer Amelia? No, I would say not. She doesn't have any of those barn door referrals. She doesn't have acute kidney injury. She doesn't have unexplained hematuria, unexplained, excuse me, anemia. She doesn't have resistant hypertension. She doesn't have hereditary kidney disease. She doesn't have nephrotic proteinuria. Um, and she doesn't have abnormal potassium, phosphorus or PTH. But while she doesn't have AKI or a drop in EGFR of at least five, over one year, it has dropped five by two. So she really does need protecting. That urine ACR means that she needs blood pressure control. She needs ACE inhibitor or ARB, optimized dose. And within its license indication, she absolutely needs an SGLT2 to help to protect her kidneys. So in summary, what difference can we make? As family doctors, a huge amount. The simple fact of the matter is, if I referred every one of my patients with CKD to secondary care, I could pretty much crash my healthcare economy single-handed. And if we all did it, every healthcare economy across the world would crash. These are primary care patients. At the early stages in stage three and stage two, CKD, frankly, is asymptomatic or has very few symptoms. And yet, for the first time, we have the tools at our disposal that we've never had in the past. Intensive blood pressure control, use of ACEs and ARBs, and use of SGLT2 to provide protection over and above the protection offered by blood pressure control, ACEs, and ARBs. Recognizing, therefore, has never been more important. We need to recognize patients with CKD. We need to highlight them and screen for them high-risk patients who might have it, and really importantly, we need to get them on board. And that is where motivational interviewing and shared decision-making come into play. In our next presentation, we'll be going back with Amelia, but journeying with her down the less happy path. She has now met the nephrologist. We really hope you'll stay with us and join us for our next presentation. In this presentation, we follow Amelia's journey four years later at age 58. She was lost to follow-up and has developed chronic kidney disease. She's been referred to a nephrologist by her primary care physician. Hello, my name is David Cherney. I'm a nephrologist and clinician scientist, professor of medicine at the University of Toronto and University Health Network. It's a pleasure to be here with you for this program. So importantly, by the time a patient with chronic kidney disease gets to a nephrologist's practice, patients already have often developed complications of kidney disease 
and often have advanced evidence of chronic kidney disease as evidenced by their impaired kidney function as well as albuminuria. It may seem like the progression to end-stage renal disease is inexorable and unavoidable. However, we now know that there are therapies that can reduce the risk of chronic kidney function decline and can also reduce the risk of developing the attendant cardiovascular complications in terms of atherosclerosis and heart failure. So in the next 10 minutes, I'll talk you through some of the key data in this field, and hopefully by the end, we'll have a better appreciation of therapies that can reduce the risk of cardiorenal disease progression. So our scenario to understand and review this area is that of Amelia, who's a 58-year-old woman who's referred for her by her primary care physician. She has type 2 diabetes, and her blood pressure is 148 over 85, so elevated. She has A3 level of albuminuria or macroalbuminuria. Her EGFR is 49 mils per minute, corrected for body surface area, and her LDL cholesterol is above target at 3.15. Her A1C is also above target at 7.8, and her BMI is elevated at 32.6. She has a significant family history of of chronic kidney disease and cardiovascular disease, which is important in considering what to do next. In terms of her medications, she's taking Lozartan and metformin, as well as atorvastatin. She also unfortunately uh, reports that her adherence is not 100%. So what does the future hold for Amelia? And as a nephrologist, I think it's important to recognize that this scenario is all too common and that Amelia's risk over the subsequent 1, 5, and 10 years is very high of losing kidney function and even progressing to end-stage renal disease. And patients in the trials that we'll discuss, in those with high levels of albuminuria in this range, patients tend to lose 3 to 5 mils per minute per year. So over five years, she will have lost potentially enough kidney function to get her into the low CKD stage four range, which is, of course, of great concern. So what are the goals of management in this scenario? So there are many goals, uh, but importantly, we have to reduce her cardiorenal risk factors. These include uh, targeting her hyperlipidemia, improving her glycemic control, targeting her weight, and as well as her blood pressure, and reaching targets according to local guidelines. Ultimately, we also want to try to reduce her renal risk and her risk of losing kidney function to the degree that she'll develop complications and finally develop end-stage kidney disease. And we also want to reduce her cardiovascular risk and her cardiovascular mortality. So what can we do and what what have we done in the past? So Amelia is already taking an angiotensin blocker, and that's based on trials such as the IDNT and Renal trials in patients with high levels of UACR and the A3 or macroalbuminuria range. And in these trials, patients had a benefit from angiotensin receptor blockade, but they still had significant residual risk of going on to develop endpoints over time. And this residual risk is why we have to think about, identify, and implement new therapies on top of an angiotensin blocker, such as an SGLT2 inhibitor. So this is why it's so important to think about these new therapies, is to target this residual risk that patients still have over time. So what is the evidence for SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with uh, chronic kidney disease? So first, and beyond just the data that we know about from the cardiovascular trials, which also showed kidney benefits, there are the dedicated trials, which I'll focus on in a bit more detail. First, 
is the Credence trial, which included patients with type 2 diabetes, GFR between 30 and 90 with A3 or macroalbuminuria level of UACR, 300 milligrams per gram or more. And in this trial, there was a 30% reduction in the primary outcome. There were also benefits around cardiovascular composite outcomes and benefits around the specific renal composite outcome. So very broad benefits across a wide range of patients, GFR 30 to 90, but only in people with type 2 diabetes. The second trial was DAPA-CKD, and this trial was the first to include people without type 2 diabetes, so diabetic and non-diabetic CKD, but a third of patients had non-diabetic CKD. And you can see that there was a significant reduction in the primary outcome with dapagliflozin, which included patients down to a GFR of 25 now, so lower than the 30 lower limit that was in Credence. And there were also benefits around the renal-specific composite outcome, so it's the primary outcome minus the cardiovascular mortality. In addition, we learned from the DAP-CKD trial that there are benefits in people with and without type 2 diabetes, which were similar. So it didn't matter if you have hyperglycemia, the benefits were still seen with dapagliflozin in this trial. In addition to that, there were benefits across a broad range of patients, including those with a range of albuminuria, a range of GFR, and a range of underlying renal risk. The final trial in this area was Empikidney, which was just presented at the American Society of Nephrology meeting in November of 2022 and recently published. The Empikidney trial was distinct because it also included patients with and without type 2 diabetes. It had the largest proportion of patients with non-diabetic CKD, about two-thirds of patients had non-diabetic CKD, and the lower limit of uh, GFR for inclusion was 20. And in terms of subgroup analyses, similar to DAPA-CKD, there were benefits in people with and without type 2 diabetes, and benefits across a range of GFR that was included in the Empikidney trial. We've also learned a lot from meta-analyses that have included data from the Empikidney trial, now 90,000 patients across 13 trials. And across these different trials, you can see that included people with and without type 2 diabetes, that there are similar benefits across different etiologies of underlying CKD, including diabetes versus GN versus ischemic hypertensive nephropathy versus other etiologies of CKD. So it doesn't matter what the underlying cause of chronic kidney diseases, these therapies have very consistent effects across these different etiologies. From a safety perspective, these therapies are very safe. We know that the risk of diabetic ketoacidosis, although elevated in those with type 2 diabetes, is very small. And we also know that DKA essentially does not occur in people with non-diabetic CKD. We also learned in terms of the lower limb amputation signal from Canvas that this has not been replicated in any other trial and was not replicated in the meta-analysis when Canvas was excluded from the analysis. So this is important uh, safety data that's reassuring for physicians and for patients. So we'll turn now to the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. These are additional therapies that we should be considering in a case such as that uh, uh, for Amelia, and importantly, Mineralocorticoid receptor antagonism with a non-steroidal therapy, finerenone, was assessed in more than 13,000 patients across two trials called Fidelio and Figaro, which have been combined for a meta-analysis called Fidelity. In Fidelity, there is a primary cardiovascular, secondary renal outcome, and importantly, there are benefits that have been seen in patients included in Fidelity the patients who were included were those with type 2 diabetes with a GFR of 25 and higher 
with A2 or A3 level, so micro or macro albuminuria, of UACR. So uh, this slide shows the Fidelio and Figaro tr uh, trials, which were the original su subsets of data that were combined for the fidelity analysis. And you can see in the original trials, there were benefits around reducing both the renal and the cardiovascular composite outcomes. And similarly in fidelity, there were benefits both from the cardiovascular and the kidney composite outcomes. From a safety perspective, what we think about with mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists especially in those with CKD, is the risk of hyperkalemia. And reassuringly, in the database from the Fidelity pooled uh, meta-analysis, there was a very low risk of significant hyperkalemia leading to discontinuation of therapy, 1.7% with finerenone versus 0.6% with placebo. So in terms of incorporating these therapies into practice very briefly, beyond lifestyle modification at the top of the KDGO flow diagram or algorithm, is the addition of first-line drug therapies. These include an SGLT2 inhibitor, a renin-angiotensin system antagonist, and metformin, as, along, as well as uh, a statin for reducing cardiovascular risk. So these are now first-line therapy in patients with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. And of course, beyond that, in patients with uh, albuminuria, we would also want to add a non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist to further reduce the risk of cardiorenal disease progression. So can we change Amelia's outcome? And I think it's important to think about these newer therapies which are now available and have a tremendous set of data that support their use as well as their safety in patients who have an indication for these therapies. I think it's important to think about uh, where patients are referred from because these therapies can potentially be used in primary care and I think that we'll see more and more use in primary care, especially as uptake in specialist offices increases over time. So in terms of the next steps in management plans, Amelia has uh, albuminuria on Lozartan, so we should add an SGLT2 inhibitor to reduce her renal risk as well as potentially her cardiovascular risk. And then we should add finerenone on top of that because of her residual albuminuria to reduce her risk of renal disease progression as well as her cardiovascular risk. While we don't necessarily have to monitor blood work after starting an SGLT2 inhibitor, we should check her potassium after starting finerenone. That's what was done in the trials, and that's what we should do in practice, very much like we do blood work after starting an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, and in doing so, reduce her risk of kidney and cardiovascular disease progression over the subsequent years. So in summary, the paradigm for managing chronic kidney disease is certainly changing, and it's changed over even the last two years with the emergence of these therapies and the trials that I've discussed today. We have to think about appropriate screening for disease, especially with GFR and albuminuria on at least an annual basis in patients with diabetes. That's so important because those are the factors that identify patients who need these new therapies in order to reduce their subsequent cardiorenal risk. So we can make a difference in our patients, especially by intervening early, having a careful monitoring and screening strategy, and getting our patients access to these new treatments. Thank you very much for your attention. I hope that you've learned a lot from this program and that this will help you in your practice. In this final presentation, we meet up with Amelia again several years after her nephrology consult. She's now age 70 and has developed heart failure. Hello, 
I'm Pardit Jund, I'm Professor of Cardiology and Epidemiology at the University of Glasgow in Glasgow, Scotland. And I'm going to follow on from my nephrology colleague and primary care physician colleague to discuss a case today of a patient who has type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease, which are two conditions that often coexist and as we know, can both affect the heart. And unfortunately, this is true for our patient Amelia, who you've heard of before, who is now showing signs of heart failure in addition to her comorbidities. So what we now need to think about is how we best treat Amelia and how we slow the progression of her heart disease and think about improving her prognosis and functional status. So let's look at Amelia, who has been referred by a primary care physician for the evaluation of fatigue, shortness of breath and edema she's been noticing in her ankles. You can see here that her blood pressure is modestly elevated, although she is on blood pressure lowering medication given her history of hypertension. She has some edema and she has some renal dysfunction. She has an EGFR, an estimated glomerular infiltration rate of 49. Her diabetes is fairly well controlled as she's on some diabetes medications at present. She has, of course, type 2 diabetes, hypertension and chronic kidney disease, but going along with these comorbidities, she also has sleep apnea and obesity and a history of premature cardiovascular disease in the family. So now that we have Amelia, the next thing we want to do, given that we suspect she has heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, is get an echocardiogram. And in Amelia's case, the measurement of left ventricular ejection fraction is 39%, showing that she has signs and symptoms of heart failure and now objective evidence of left ventricular dysfunction, giving her the diagnosis of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So now we have to think about what we're going to do in terms of management. And the goals of management in a patient like Amelia are to improve her symptoms, make her feel better, improve her functional status, but also, and importantly, reduce the risk of further cardiovascular events in the future, such as hospitalisations and mortality or death. We're very lucky in heart failure that we have some very good guidelines underpinned by large randomised controlled trials which have shown us which therapies are beneficial for patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So now if we look at the guidelines, you can see that we have four main classes of drugs that have been shown to benefit patients in terms of improving outcomes. That is ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, beta blockers, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists and SGLT2 inhibitors. And of course, we still use loop diuretics to treat the fluid retention and congestion that patients have. Now, after this, we have to make a decision about device therapy in some patients. Once we have established the patient on guideline recommended pharmacotherapy, but that's a little bit further down the line. And today we're going to concentrate on establishing the patient onto these major classes of medications that will improve outcomes in the longer term. So how do we make this decision? What do we think about when looking at a patient like Amelia about how to select the right drugs for this patient? And of course, we have to consider her comorbidities, her laboratory tests and her physical findings. And we have to then think of a plan that integrates the physical findings, laboratory findings, as well as the evidence to choose the best treatments for this patient and to try and get her on as many of the major pharmacotherapies as possible that will improve her outcomes. And we have to consider the medications that she's on, 
other things like blood pressure and kidney function because these are affected by the drugs that we want to start and other comorbidities such as type 2 diabetes which might be improved or treated by the drugs that we now use for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And on that note I'd like to think a little bit about some of the therapies that are now in our guidelines for the treatment of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction that have previously been used for the treatment of type 2 diabetes because these have really added to our knowledge of heart failure and given us another option to treat patients like Amelia. So the SGLT2 inhibitors were tested in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, so that's an ejection fraction of 40% or lower in the DAPA-HF trial with dapagliflozin and the EMPA-reduced trial with empagliflozin. And you can see here that these two trials showed a statistically significant and large and clinically meaningful reduction in cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. And I mentioned that Amelia had an ejection fraction of 39%, so right in the cusp of the upper range of those trials. But of course, we have many patients whose ejection fraction might fall the other side of 40% or even higher. And what do we do with these patients? Well, we also know that in these patients, the SGLT2 inhibitors are beneficial in patients with mildly reduced and preserved ejection fraction heart failure. From the two trials, the Emperor Preserve trial, again with empagliflozin and deliver with dapagliflozin, that the drugs reduce cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalizations. And in fact, when you take all of the data in totality, you can see that regardless of what the ejection fraction is, patients with heart failure benefit from an SGLT2 inhibitor added to their therapy. And in fact, if we look at the data from these two trials, when we pull them together, we can see that the treatment benefit of the SGLT2 inhibitors is consistent for patients regardless of the rejection fraction. If we take all of the trials together, including some of the other ones that were done in patients only with type 2 diabetes, but also having heart failure, we see reductions in all of the different outcomes, such as heart failure hospitalization uh, and trending towards a reduction in cardiovascular death and all-cause death as well. So now that we know that these drugs are effective and they're recommended in the guidelines, what are we going to do about selecting the appropriate therapy for our patient? Well, this is how I might think about integrating all of the information I have about the patient and selecting the most appropriate drug to treat the patient with. I have to look at their blood pressure, their heart rate, presence of other comorbidities such as atrial fibrillation and of course their kidney function and whether they have chronic kidney disease and what their specific kidney function is. I use all of this information to try and select from those drugs, the SGLT2 inhibitors, the beta blockers, the angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors, and the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, which drug I want to start first and which ones I think are most important. And of course, if you think about patients, there's lots and lots of different combinations that can be found when you're in clinical practice. Therefore, we have to take every patient as they come in front of us and try and think about the patient in front of us and think about the best drugs to use for that patient. What I might do is think about things like their heart rate, their blood pressure, and then select the right drugs. So for example, if I have a patient who has a low blood pressure, I might not want to start with an inhibitor of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, such as an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin-receptor-neprilysin inhibitor, as they will lower blood pressure further. 
Or I might want to think about the other drugs that are on and stop those other blood pressure lowering drugs. So for example, in this patient's case, amlodipine, which has not been shown to improve morbidity and mortality, and swap that out for an angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor. Of course, stopping losartan at the same time. But if you also consider comorbidities, you can think about other added benefits that a patient might get from a therapy for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So in this case, the patient has type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease, both conditions which have shown to be improved by the addition of an SGLT2 inhibitor. And now our patient has a third condition, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So again, you'll benefit from an SGLT2 inhibitor for that condition. So this patient now has three indications for an SGLT2 inhibitor, really pushing it to the top of the list of drugs that you'd want to start very quickly. So thinking about all of these different aspects of the patient helps guide us to which drugs we want to start and how we want to start them and in what order. And by doing that, it enables us to try and get the patient onto as many of these drugs as possible, as soon as possible, to modify their outcome. Now, given that I've started or plan to start all of these drugs, Amelia is obviously a complex patient with many comorbidities. She will need care not only from her heart failure cardiologist, but also her nephrologist, who you've heard from earlier. And then linking all of this together is a central role of the primary care physician. So interacting with the primary care physician and nephrologist is vitally important because we all need to work together to ensure that our patient, Amelia, gets into many of these guideline-recommended therapies as possible. So thank you for listening. I hope that's been useful and given you some guidance and framework to treat your patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.